a Podcast One production. The media cycle in politics is a little like time. It has no end. It is infinite. There's always a story or a narrative to push. There's always a politician trying to big themselves up and talk another down. And the best way to do that is in front of a camera or into a microphone. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this episode of Peacock Politics, I'll delve further into the media cycle to better understand why politicians need to be seen and heard and how they get their message across to us, the ones that put them there in the first place. There are two sides to the media cycle. Already in this series, we have the politician's perspective from Kevin Rudd's former press general, Lachlan Harris. Now for the media's perspective of dealing with a politician, and for that, a man who's been a political journalist for nearly two decades. Kieran Gilbert has done tens of thousands of interviews with politicians and loves it so much he's on air every weekday at 5am for his show First Edition on Sky News. So, Kieran, the hours you keep, couple that with the interview subjects. Are you mad? I think so. <laughs> if I'm not, I'm on the way. Adam, <laughs> you know what? It's it's like, um, and I know this is your, your day job sport, but it, it is like sport in some respects, politics, because, uh, you know, the two sides competing, never the same, always a different contest. And I guess that's what's kept me engaged. And this is uh, my sixth federal election. I've done, uh, you know, dozens of state elections over that time uh, here in Canberra. Time does f- uh, fly. I'm a bit older than when I kicked off. But, uh, you know, th- it's never been dull. And I guess that's what's kept me, kept me in the game, Adam. Now, as far as stories go and, and finding them for a journalist, is Canberra the most fertile ground in the land? It is right now. Uh, in election periods, uh, the stories just seem to fall on your lap. Uh, the guests, not always as easy because what happens in election campaigns, and I'm sure your previous guests would have indicated this, but it becomes much more centrally controlled by campaign headquarters. So, you might have a person, a, a member of parliament, a front bench, a minister or, or shadow minister who comes on every week generally, but in an election campaign, they're put on ice. Uh, they're, they're told, no, sorry, uh, we're going to, uh, your appearances are going to be reined in. Uh, and that's basically to avoid mistakes. But on, on the, the other side of that, there's always a story in an election, um, whether it's one side pushing a story against the other or a positive story that they're trying to prosecute in terms of their policies. It's actually a period which is very fertile in terms of generating stories. So, Kieran, when a big story hits, is it like immediate chaos in your world, in your little office down there in Canberra, everyone bumping into each other, trying to get information and trying to get this person and that person on? Or is everything pretty cool, calm and collected? Because you have to be, otherwise you won't get clarity quickly enough when this big story hits. It's it's like a, a duck swimming, you know, you try and keep it cool on top, but it's chaos underneath, you know, <laughs> the, the legs are going hard because, it, you know, with a big news story, you, you often, if you, even if you're not in the office, you're back in the office soon enough and it's, uh, it is chaos, but, you know, you try and keep it measured on air. We You try and get guests on, um, everyone's trying to, to, to be part of the story and that's part of, you know, the the charm of journalism, isn't it? That you want to be on the front line of, of history in some respects. And the beautiful thing is um, with 24-hour news is that we can go for as long as we like and we are producers are running around trying to get guests to keep us on and then on air, we, when there's a breaking news story, try and ascertain exactly what's gone on. Sadly, it's often to do with big 
developments internationally, whether it be a terrorist attack or something of that sort. So it's often very serious stories that we're talking about in that context that would warrant that sort of uh, chaos and breaking news environment. But something like the newsroom, I mean, maybe that's a bit too dramatic, but uh, (laughs) those scenes, they're not that far off the real thing. One thing I've gathered really quickly about Australian politics is because it's a party-based system, so everyone needs to be on the same page. So essentially is it the journalist's uh, job to find out if they're on the same page, not to try and make sure that they're on different pages, but, you know, just to make sure that they're all singing from the same hymn sheet? Yeah, that's right. And it goes to as much internal politics as we've seen with the dramas that the Liberal Party's had the last year as it does between political parties. There are some issues where the major parties don't want any difference between them. National security is one, foreign policy when you're talking about a controversial bilateral uh, relationship with a big uh, trading partner like China, for example, they don't really want that much difference between them because it's not in their interest, it's not in the national interest. But when you get into things like energy policy, people's power prices, those sorts of ideological issues like climate change, um, then those divisions are very real. And I think it's relevant for people to know if some people in one of the major parties don't Uh, you know, believe the science, for example, and that led to divisions in the Liberal Party recently. And that, I guess, the reason I point to that is because that's been the divide, the schism within the Liberal Party that has been the one that journalists like myself have focused on most in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. It's when you start rubbing your hands together. Fair enough. Um, How do you know, election period or non-election period, either or, when things are busy, when there's a lot on the table, how do you know what is the story or a story above another one? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. Uh, and sometimes it's a work in progress. Uh, you know, we're on air myself four and a half hours in the morning from the get-go 5am and uh, so the breakfast period. And, and for me, sometimes it is, you know, as we're on air, things develop, you see the reactions from various players. They might appear on other networks and things can develop quite quickly in terms of one story or another. Other things can emerge, you know. Say we become aware of a story in the West Australian, which we weren't aware when we went to air, that become, because it goes to print uh, later, given the time cycle. So it, these various things can happen throughout the morning. For journalists and newspapers, you know, when you're going to print the night before, I guess the judgment goes to whether or not it's uh, a, a big enough new development to warrant a front page or one of those things that you you touched on earlier, one of those internal tensions that might uh, elicit people's interest as well, which is also newsworthy. What's it like then when you have what you think is a huge story and and you can't wait to deliver it and then something gazumps it? That, yeah, that happens quite a bit, doesn't it? You know, in this fast news cycle that you spoke spoke about in the introduction, it is, it can be quite annoying. In any other week, it might be a story that dominates for 48 hours, but, you know, on a day when another thing happens, you could lose it within 30, 40 minutes. So it is frustrating, but that's the nature of the game. And, and that's part of the charm of the job that we do is that it is always changing. And it's, we can leave work and it's you're done for the day, basically. It's not like a, a other jobs where you go home and stew over it you're, as soon as you're, uh, you're off air. That's it. And you start again the next day. So, Kieran, take us to 
that moment last August or that week last August and the uh, the leadership spill with Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton and then Scott Morrison over the top, if it wasn't for a week like that, there'd be no peacock politics, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'll leave it up to other people to decide. But <laughs> th- that's what got me intrigued into this political process and how it all plays out. And your side, the, the media cycle side of things is an intrinsic part of it because if you guys weren't on air that time, I was watching you 24-7 basically, was looking at you more than I was looking at my kids that week uh, <laughs> on Sky News, that how it all played out behind the scenes and what it was like for you in that moment trying to navigate a way through everything that was going on and how you gather your information and then deliver it. Can you give us some ideas? There's spin doctors in your ear behind the scenes trying to push you one way and you it's just a, a moral judgment for yourself or have you got people around you that you collaborate with and, and then deliver? Uh, it, it's a bit of both. It, it's spin doctors. It's the, the players themselves in the parliament, uh, the, the the key figures in, in the government. Uh, one thing happens when a side of politics is ripping itself apart like that is that the other side just completely shuts up, basically. They, don't, they think, well, you, you don't interrupt your enemy when they're fighting themselves. So that's one thing. You don't have to worry about the opposition because, or, or the other side. You know, If it's the opposition fighting, then the government's not going to be intervening too much. So you're basically just focusing on the party itself that's facing the issues. And then you just have to try and find the truth. And it's very hard sometimes when it's, um, it's so close. And when you're talking about human beings who can be fickle, you know, there was one minister, Mitch Firefield, who backed uh, three different leaders in the space of the week. I mean, he initially, he, he, well, he backed Peter, well, Malcolm Turnbull to, to begin with and then supported Peter Dutton. And by the time of the vote, he backed Scott Morrison. So Can't lose. Exactly. He was, he was all over the shop. So when you're trying to get a handle on these things, it is tricky, but you just have to try and trust the people that you've dealt with a lot over the years and uh, that have been honest with you over over many years and trust their take on things, their view from the inside, because I'm not in the meetings with the Prime Minister and the Deputy and others. It, it's We have to trust those in the room to tell you what's gone on. And they will spin, you know, in a very intense way around those times because there's a lot at stake. It's the Prime Ministership of the country. But it's interesting, that period, Adam, it's... Um, what it also has been a precursor to this time has been some reforms from both sides of politics, which I think should preclude that sort of, you know, craziness within the walls of parliament from happening again and losing a prime minister basically because he's lost the short-term popularity of some of his colleagues. I think it's going to be much more robust on both sides of politics um, the stability of uh, the Prime Minister. So that is a good thing and I think the nation needs it. The media cycle doesn't need it though. It takes the heat out of that. Um, Just on how you said the issue of trust. So do you know that politicians have or do lie to your face? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And in elections as well. So right, um, you know, in the period, the lead up to election day, there's so much, uh, I don't know if you use the word lying, you know, but certainly colouring the political uh, contest to suit themselves, whether it's talking up their chances, talking down their chances. I think at the moment there's probably a bit of both of that happening because Labor fears that if people think they're going to win too easily that they won't get all the votes necessarily that they might 
obtain on election day because the view is that if you are, say, someone who might vote for Labor but you're not happy with all their policies, that you get in the ballot box, if you think Shorten's going to win anyway, you might tick the Greens um, because you think he's going to win. Whereas if they play down the expectations that people don't think they will necessarily win and the, that same individual goes into the ballot box and they think, well, I better vote, vote for Labor because I don't want this current government to stay there. So there's a lot of uh, spinning, expectation management, lying. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's trying to navigate all of that and get to an honest reporting, which is the art of the job. As we sit here and talk about it now, it's now is in the middle of an election campaign, but what about day-to-day? Is there much BS thrown your way that you know is along those lines, but you just have to almost go along with it or, or stay sweet with certain sources, not call them out for what they are and, and ruin a relationship? Is there a bit of managing like that that goes on? Oh, look, I don't think so. Not on a day-to-day basis. Um, they're not that brazen in terms of the BS uh, lines. And if they are, well, they're not really worth much in terms of being a source. Uh, to be a, a trusted source in a political journalism context, you need to be told the truth. And, it, it, you know, whether it's the truth as they saw it on that day or whatever, I mean, it needs to be factual because that's what we do. It's our bread and butter. And if you don't have that and you report it and you're proven wrong, well, your credibility shot. What are some of the tricks that media teams play from a politician's office? Um, my producer Liv tells the great story of when she was working in a, a newsroom when Kevin Rudd decided that he wanted a challenge for the leadership a few years ago and it was five minutes to six, knowing full well mm. that that would get max exposure and have newsrooms around the country falling over themselves, especially on the eastern seaboard. Are, are there tricks like that that go that you know about and you know they're coming but they still use them? Oh, yeah, definitely. There's that uh, that example, which is a very good example. There's the other thing where you don't want any coverage and it's, you know, described as putting out the garbage on late on Friday afternoon. That's when you often get uh, announcements of, uh, of sackings or cuts to services or departments or whatever. If there's rubbish that needs to be put out, they normally put it out via a uh, news release in your inbox about four o'clock, five o'clock Friday afternoon. Or around a big event as well, around a big final, yep. NRL grand final, things like exactly, that. Exactly, yep. Things where they know it's totally going to be swamped by other news, and yeah, that's true. So those tricks are used all the time, and I guess sometimes politicians, though, when there's a moment like we saw in this uh, recent election campaign with Bill Shorten and that very emotional news conference he held, it's the sort of thing that. People might see it as been. I didn't. I, I saw that as a very authentic um, response to a story about his mother mm. in one of the newspapers. And, and that that sort of authenticity, I believe, has a great deal more impact than any sort of spin or, or timing can. And it's not easy to achieve. I don't think he went out there initially just to say, "Look, I'm going to get emotional and cry." It was, it was all, you know, it was from a very deep place for him. But those sorts of moments are worth so much more in a political sense than every staged ad that costs millions of dollars once you put it to air. I mean, those those rare moments, I think, are, are, are much more powerful. From your point of view, what sets the best politicians in the media apart from the rest? 
It's authenticity. You know, I use that word in that shortened example, but the best communicators are authentic. Now, you look at John Howard, the longest serving recent prime minister and in our recent political history, and, and he might have seemed like your, your uncle or, you know, whatever, but he was very, uh, you know, more traditional, certainly in his views and so on. He was authentic. What he said, he believed. And when you asked John Howard a question, never very rarely used notes, and he knew whatever question, whatever issue, it fell within a prism of his thinking. He's, you know, he's, he's such a well-formed character in the sense that he's been in public life and had been for decades. Whatever issue was put to him, he knew instinctively what he thought. And I think with that came a real authenticity that saw his longevity in office. He was prime minister for 11 years. So if you had to say the key trait for a, a, a politician, I think a, for a successful politician is to convey that sort of authenticity over a long period of time. So what's more enjoyable then, to, to interview someone like John Howard or to interview a politician who doesn't have their ducks in a row, if you want to use that cliche, that they, they come across as a scripted actor, if you like. They've obviously been fed, force-fed some information prior to doing the interview and it's, well, on face value, easier to trip them up. Would you rather that example to chat to and get something out of or a John Howard? They, they both can be interesting, but I think that generally the politician who speaks in terms that people relate to, that people understand, uh, that, you know, makes good television, that's the best interview. Um, it, and I, I really used to enjoy interviewing characters like Peter Costello. He, the former treasurer, was great to interview because he always was, he, you know, he was an entertainer. Many people saw comparisons between him and and Keating, I think Keating probably had his measure in that sort of thespian <laughs> approach to politics. But uh, those sorts of individuals are the best because you're always going to be entertained, at least as the interviewer. And I think your viewers will be as well. What happens in, because I'm going back to when I was in primary school and we did a tour of Parliament House, as we all do. We go on the excursion to Canberra and we tour around. And I remember that all the, is it not the, press gallery, I think it's called, all, yeah. all the offices of all the media organisations are in a certain section of Parliament House so that you've got easy access to politicians. But conversely, you're essentially in the one building and you're living in each other's back pockets. So when you trip someone up or an interview doesn't go well in the eyes of the politician and but you feel good about it or vice versa, mm. what's that relationship like uh, in the, the days that follow? It, it, well, it, it can be very awkward and certainly when the interview finishes, if it's face-to-face, -face, it, uh, yeah, it, it, it can be quite awkward, particularly if there's a moment of uh, tension where you call out someone for a misleading statement uh, and keep pursuing them and they stumble and uh, they realise that they've had a shocker. Give us um, an example. Come on. Well, in the last few months, there was, um, you know, it's quite a, a controversial issue, but uh, when the Medivac issue was being discussed, Michael McCormack, the Deputy Prime Minister, was going very hard and suggesting that Labor um, was going to allow in rapists and spivs and, uh, you know, pedophiles into the country. And, and when I had him on one morning, I took him to task on that because Labor had, with the crossbench, put in provisions to prevent anyone 
who is was found guilty of a crime or charged with a crime would not be allowed to be medically evacuated under that legislation. And I said, well, that's that's not right. And, and he said, and well, basically he tried to defend his position, but it was indefensible because what he said was wrong. And he was using very inflammatory language, which which I think doesn't help anyone. And it was very awkward. The exchange probably went for, uh, you know, four or five minutes. And then as he left, we shook hands and, uh, yeah, I ha- he hasn't done many interviews since. <laughs> have you seen him since? Oh, I don't think I have actually, but, uh, yeah, I don't think it went down too well. But, you know, that was a moment where you have to call out the BS and mm. it was it was BS and, it, and it's dangerous as well when you use that sort of language in such a sensitive policy area. Um, if you have facts to prove that that is the risk of a policy, fine. That's you can you make that case, but if it's not factual, if it goes against what the uh, you know what I knew was the policy that had gone and the legislation that had gone through the parliament, well then uh, my job is to call that out. In the public space, with, with the public watching on, there's always going to be accusations of bias from just your general punter towards someone on television or someone writing in a newspaper. That's just how perception works. However. Within the working relationship between a member of the media and a politician, mm. does the accusation of bias come up very often? And how is that portrayed? And, and how is the relationship when that accusation is made, if it is? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, maybe it can happen via, you know, an angry phone call or text message. I, To be honest, most of the politicians I deal with, um, there's a mutual trust in the sense that if I'm talking to them off the record or as a source or whatever, they know that um, I'm not going to, you know, out them or... Dip them uh, in it, yeah. If they're telling me something which is um, on background, for example. So trust is a big issue in in this game. Uh, And in that context, I don't think if you're true to your word and and, and in terms of reporting, you're not going to uh, drop someone in it once they give you some information which they, you know, have told you on background, well, then generally the relationship stays on an even keel. And basically, like any field, Adam, you're not going to deal with someone who necessarily you don't see eye to eye with. Mm. Um, generally, it's something that's based on on a general sense of trust between the, the journalist and the, the politician. It always comes to a point, though, you know, you can never be best mates with a politician because they know there's underpinning that. It's not like you're mate at the golf club or wherever who mm-hmm. there's no way you'd ever dud them, you know, if they're in a trouble situation, you, you help them and whatever. But if a politician's in a tough spot uh, and they deserve to face scrutiny for their behaviour, their judgement or whatever, you have to... You have to call it out, regardless of what sort of, uh, you know, cooperation you've had in the past. Do moral dilemmas come up very often about what is relevant to a politician's life and a, and a life in office as opposed to just in general? Yeah, they do come up, absolutely. Um, and we saw it during the election campaign, a fierce debate about reference to Bill Shorten's mother, um, various uh, other issues where I think these moral dilemmas absolutely do come up. Uh, my personal rule of thumb is if it doesn't affect their job, you know, for example, if a politician is unfaithful to uh, their wife, I mean, in my view, that is something that they have to deal with in terms of their relationship with their wife. It's not for me to report it. Personal lives are personal. Uh, and the only way I would see that becoming relevant to a public 
chat or report or discourse is if this same person is out there preaching, you know, great morality and, and mm. saying that, you know, the family values have to be upheld and, you know, that's their key message in politics. If they're doing that on the one hand and yet they've got five mistresses on the other, well, then that becomes relevant, doesn't it? Yeah. Other than that, I don't really see that sort of stuff as... as uh, being worthy of reporting time. Yeah, chances are their mind's not on the job, so to speak. Um, <laughs> dealing with staffers, do you deal with their media people more often than you deal face-to-face with the politicians to organise interviews and in the course of that process? Or how do you deal with the, the people behind the scenes? Well, we've got um, some great producers in our Canberra Bureau who tee up a lot of our interviews in the, the days prior to our programs, when you're dealing with um, more senior people, sometimes I'll send a text directly to the, the person themselves as opposed to go via their press secretary. And mm. uh, and often if it's late in the piece or, you know, it's something that we're, we show, we've got a program coming up the next day and my producer's struggling to get someone from one of the major parties, well, then I might uh, make some phone calls, send text messages and organise it. But we do have a great production team. Having said that, when we need individuals that have maybe said no a lot, uh, then may, that's when we go directly to the person, phone them, text them, and and try and get them on that way. It's not done on a favour basis that you have to return, is it? No, nah, no, no, no. They're, they're uh, cool with that? Yeah, yeah, no. I think, I think the favour is basically that it's mutually beneficial for them to get airtime, prosecute their case, and we've got we've got a... A program to put to air. You put that little carrot in front of them, and then eventually they'll uh, they'll come over and have a have a little bite. Um, has the line between a journalist and a commentator been blurred for good? Is it hard to tell which one's which? Yeah, it's a good. That's a good question because in this uh, modern age of uh, of social media and and just so much content that is provided, and I guess you know also an appetite for that comment in. Political journalism, I think a lot of journalists are also commentators. Now, there's a difference between um, partisan commentary and analysis, and I think um, most of my colleagues in the press gallery at Parliament House would be more on the side of analysis as opposed to commentary that you might hear from other broadcasters. Is that hard for you sometimes to differentiate because you'll ask your opinion but then I don't know how you feel about it but most journalists go well it isn't actually my opinion that really matters here it's the opinion of the person I'm talking to yeah that's true I, I feel comfortable providing my analysis uh, you know if it's if it's an opinion of a political party or who should win who you should vote for um, who's got the better, set of policies. I mean, that's up to the people. It's up to voters to decide. It's not me. It's, it's, it's up to the viewer. It's up to voters to make that judgment on the individual and the policies we're discussing. But So I don't give a view in that sense. My views that I air are based on, um, you know, my judgment on a policy by a policy basis and, um, and basically try to analyse the situation as opposed to give my view on who is better in a political contest. Can the media get caught in the Canberra bubble, so to speak? Definitely. It's really good to get out and to to talk to family and friends in other cities. Canberra is so um, 
I know Scott Morrison like you know used that term a lot in recent months, but uh, there is a risk for journalists and politicians as well when you get caught up in that bubble. But it's not just a Canberra bubble; it's a media and political bubble. I think that extends to newsrooms and parliaments around the country. If you don't get out there and talk to people about the challenges that they face and their views on the political discourse, well, then you, you, you lose touch. So I think it's very important to do that. Who's your conscience in that regard? Who do you call and say, start talking about, oh, you, you wouldn't believe what happened today and blah, blah, and 30 seconds later there, there's silence on the end of the phone because they've actually fallen asleep or it's, it's just <laughs> relevant. But you think it's really important, but for the general punter out there, it's just like, well, it's yeah. not a big deal. Who cares? Uh, my, I'm one of uh, six kids, so my siblings generally give me their thoughts on everything and <laughs> and that's very valuable to be honest and, and uh, my brother in uh, Melbourne I, I'll often call him and run by issues of the day and uh, whatever else and, and he's busy doing his own life and running his own family in, in Melbourne and, and he's very much removed from that political bubble and I do value his and, and my other siblings insights into the stories that I might think are massive but you know when you talk to people who are doing their bit thing day by day, getting their kids to school, working nine to five, that it probably doesn't even register on a lot of their radar. The internet, how has that changed uh, the media cycle? Oh, wow. It's changed it completely from the time I started in radio, uh, what, uh, 25 years ago now. It is just extraordinary. And in fact, I don't I don't know how I ever did my job in, in rolling, breaking television without the access to Twitter and other news providing services because, you know, those sorts of things, what you see other colleagues reporting, saying what politicians are, you know, announcing during breaking news in a political sense, but when we're doing international news as well, it's just so valuable mm. to have that as a resource. So uh, it's changed it completely. It's certainly sped it up. And I know politicians to this day uh, still trying to grapple with how to manage it because um, that it, it is just so hard to maintain a consistent big message when the news cycle just shifts every few hours. It's a bit like um, I look at tradies now without mobile phones. It's like, how did you ever do your job without a mobile phone? It's, it's weird. <laughs> with that, do you get the feeling though that with social media and as politicians become more savvy with that um, ability to communicate, that it it skips over the traditional media a little bit. They can go from their own little office and do their own video straight to consumer without having to go through the media. Oh, definitely. They're doing that more and more, getting around the mainstream media. Um, and, uh, of course, we've seen that with readership declining in newspapers. Uh, so the challenge of of just simply going to one newspaper and saying, okay, well, We'll get most of the audience, most of the electorate via that particular um, newspaper or this television news. You can't do that anymore. You need to use social media. And, and I think for politicians, it's very valuable to, for them to have that access directly to the the uh, the voter. And you see that at the most powerful man in the world does it on a daily basis. It's extraordinary. Um, in, incoherently on, sometimes. At 3am out of the White House. It's, it's, it's extraordinary to see foreign policy being delivered <laughs> via 140 characters. Are we ever going to get to that, do you think, with one of ours down here? Who knows? I didn't think we would with 
the US presidency, but we have, and it's just one of the most extraordinary times uh, in political, you know, in political terms that I've ever seen. And that day that he won, it was just such a surprise. And he's he's continued to just, you know, be such a source of news every week. I mean, Obama didn't have, if he had a scandal, I can't remember it, whereas there seems to be one in this White House every week. <laughs> It is a fascinating occupation that you have, uh, Kieran Gilbert. Thank you so much for explaining some of it on Peacock Politics. Appreciate your time. Adam, thanks for having me. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Liv Proud, sound production by Darcy Thompson, theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.